You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty Father, we pray that you would humble sinners and exalt the Savior by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit. For the sake of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, amen. Several years ago, I shared a Diet Coke and a BLT with a young man, uh, and we talked about his atheist worldview. For two hours, we debated between Christianity and atheism. His views would best be described as naturalism or material reductionism, meaning that he believed that everything that is true and real can be measured empirically or under a microscope. There's nothing supernatural, there is nothing metaphysical in the world. And so I had a long-term relationship with this young man, so I, I didn't pull any punches. I was able to push him a little because I wanted him to accept the full implications of his atheistic worldview. If there is no God, then there is no truth. If there is no God, then there is no morality. If there is no God, then there is no meaning. And if there is no God, there is no love. These supernatural realities depend upon a personal and absolute God. If you're being intellectually and philosophically logical, then you have to accept this proposition. Absolute, personal, and supernatural realities like truth, morality, meaning, and love depend upon an absolute, personal, and supernatural being from which these things emanate. Now, to his credit at the cognitive level, he accepted these propositions. He said, you're right. I don't believe that there is anything true. I don't believe in morality. I don't think there's any meaning in life. And really, at the core, I don't really think there's any such thing as love. And I asked him if he realized just how dark and hopeless this nihilistic worldview was. And he says, yes, but I, I think it's right. I think it's true. So why was he clinging to such a hopeless worldview? Well, maybe it's because he genuinely believed it was true. Well, then I started to point out some of the contradictions in his statements and his beliefs in the course of our conversation. Uh, I pointed out that he was saying that Christianity is dead wrong and that his worldview was right. It was true. Well, that presupposes that there's truth. You don't say that something is false if you don't believe there's any truth at all. Secondly, one of his biggest arguments against Christianity was the injustices and oppression uh, committed by the church throughout church history. And he's right. The church has many dark chapters in its history. But if there's no morality, you can't really say that this is wrong and this is unjust. That presupposes that there's morality. Then I pointed out to him, he was a really hardworking, ambitious young man. He had big goals. And that kind of presupposes that there's a sense of purpose and meaning in life. And finally, he was a warm person. He loved his family. He loved his brothers. He had a sweet relationship with his grandfather. And I pointed out that that presupposes that he believes in love because he practices it every day within his family. Now, he acknowledged that his worldview, you know, he may have some flaws. He may need to think a little more about it. And I said, and again, keep in mind, I had a friendship with this young man. I said, no, your worldview is, is basically incoherent. It really doesn't make any sense. It's so full of contradictions. So why was he clinging to such a hopeless and incoherent worldview? Well, I started to talk to him about the hope of the gospel and to offer some apologetics for the truth of Christianity and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And he says, that's nice and all, but he wanted nothing to do with it. He was very, very content in his worldview. So we have to ask the question, what did his worldview offer him? Why was he clinging to it so desperately? And I would say that the primary reason is because in his worldview, he had control and he had autonomy. This kid was smart. He'd been to enough church, he'd been to enough Bible studies in Sunday school to know that if Christianity is true and the gospel is real, 
while it may be very redemptive and very hopeful, it meant that he must necessarily hand over total control of his life to Jesus. That is the nature of entering into any relationship. If you're going to go on a vacation with another family, you're going to surrender some degree of control over the schedule. If you're a teenager and you're going to go out with your friends, you're going to give up some control over where you're going to go to eat or what movie you're going to see. If you're a young adult and you're going to have roommates, well, you're going to surrender some control over space in the refrigerator and the decor, the living space, and the cable provider. Uh, If you're going to get married, you're going to give up a lot of control, control of your money, control of your time. And if you're going to have kids, well, you're going to give up all control. (laughs) especially over your sleep and your comfort. Uh, But that's the nature of relationship. Entering into relationship means surrendering control. Well, how about entering into relationship with the Most High God, the King of Kings, the Creator of heaven and earth? Entering into relationship with God means giving up all control. That's the nature of relationship, and that's the most offensive challenge of Christianity the necessary demand that you surrender total control of your life to Christ. Well, loss of control is the central issue in the two stories from Luke chapter 5 today. Jesus calls Simon, James, John, and Levi to follow him. He invites them into relationship, but not just any relationship. He says, follow me. It's a relationship where Jesus is in control. But... It is totally unnatural for us to surrender control. The world tells us that we will be most happy and most satisfied when we have maximum control and independence in our lives. And it is a lie that we have to reject every day. But again, it is totally unnatural to surrender control. Simon acknowledges the counterintuition of giving up control when he says to Jesus, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, experienced fishermen knew that there were no fish to be caught during the day. You caught fish at night. So Jesus was calling him to do something that cut against the grain and was unnatural. But that's what Simon did. He trusted this unnatural word from Jesus. So today, I want to look briefly at three factors in this story that enabled Simon, James, John, and Levi to surrender control of their lives so that we may enjoy the hope, the peace, and the joy of the gospel that results from surrendering our lives to Christ. These factors factors are the problem, the promise, and the pursuit. And in these three factors, I hope we will find three means to encourage us to surrender control to Christ so that we might have the joy and satisfaction of being in the presence of God and seeing the glory of Jesus. First, the problem. The problem was simply this. Life was not working for the people in the stories. Levi had been living a life of corruption as a tax collector. Now, tax collectors would buy a contract from the Roman government whereby they would commit to deliver a certain amount of tax revenue within a designated area. And Rome didn't really care. Uh, All Rome wanted was that amount that you promised. And so what most tax collectors would do is they would collect far more than what Rome demanded, and they would pocket the surplus. Tax collectors were despised by Jews. They were seen as sellouts who were working for the enemy, the Roman government, and for Gentiles, they despised them equally as well. Now, the fishermen had spent all night fishing, and they had caught nothing. 
This means no food, no revenue. It would be like owning a donut store, and you've, got, you've gotten into the store at one at night to fix the donuts, and you open up the doors for business, and not a single customer walks through the door. You generate zero revenue. And we do not know the entire story of the lives of the fishermen, but we know that the empty nets were emblematic of the futility of their lives without Christ. Now, they were genuinely fishing at night, but the darkness of when they were fishing is also symbolic of the darkness of their lives as they maintained control and God did not. We know that life was not working for them to the extent that they were willing to give up everything they knew and everything they possessed to follow Jesus. Now, all of us have observed a friend or a family member who has struggled with addiction. We see people compromise their health and their relationships and their money and their security as they struggle with alcoholism or drug addiction or addiction of another sort. It's one of the most obvious signs of life not working when a person is falling apart as a product of addiction. Well, what is the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous? AA says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives became unmanageable. In other other words, we admitted and recognized that life was just not working. Well, what are the remaining steps of AA? As any of the brave people in our church who are in recovery will tell you, the rest of the 12 steps are focused on surrendering control of your addiction and of your life to God. That is the answer that AA provides, and that is the answer that God provides as well. Now, if there is an area of your life that is simply not working, where there's fear and turmoil and despair and conflict, there is a good chance that God is not in control of that area of your life. There is a good chance that God is calling you to surrender that area, to hand it over to him, and to help you realize that you are carrying a God-sized burden that only the Lord can bear. And the fishermen and the tax collectors leave and surrender control of their former lives, not just because it wasn't working, but also because God offered them something better, which takes us to our second point, the promise. First, we need to recognize just how radical the actions of Levi and the fishermen were. Levi, he may have been a pariah in Jewish society, but he was a really, really rich pariah. He basically could print money. Uh, He could indiscriminately collect revenue from the citizens. I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm like, man, if I had a little extra money, I would love to plant some sod in my backyard. Yeah, these are the really fantastic fantasies I have. Um, You may sometimes think, I'd love some new furniture in my den, or gosh, your car is breaking down all the time, you just wish you had a little more cash to buy a new car and get rid of those problems. But unfortunately, most of us live on a budget, right? And you just can't pull money out of the sky. Levi could basically pull money out of the sky. It wasn't a bad gig. But when an original reader saw that he had left his tax post, they would have known that Levi had crossed a red line. There was no turning back. If you left your tax post, you effectively terminated your career. Now, the fishermen were not wealthy, but fishing was the only life they knew. There's a good chance that their dads were fishermen and they had taken on that job for that reason. And so leaving their job as a fisherman was essentially, in some ways, like abandoning their family identity. Well, what led them to such radical moves? It was the promise of being in the presence of God. After Simon sees the bounty of fish in the nets to the extent that the ships are sinking, he bows down at the feet of Jesus and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
His reaction is similar to that of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees the full glory of God and he hits the deck and he says, Woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips. It's similar to the reaction of Job in Job 42, when he sees the glory of God and he hits the deck and he says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Simon realizes that in the person of Jesus Christ, he is standing in the very presence of God and he is seeing the glory of the Lord. Now, Levi does not put the same kind of language on his experience, but his reaction tells us a great deal. He throws a feast of celebration, and he invites his friends to come be in the presence of Jesus. Levi had abandoned his career, his power, his financial position, and the only thing he walked away with was Jesus. But that was enough, and in fact, that was everything. Levi wanted to celebrate Christ, And he wanted to bring others into his presence. Now the world will tell you that the pinnacle of human experience is to get really, really rich and really, really powerful so that you can do whatever you want to do on your terms and you don't have to depend on anyone. To me, the fantasy of being a billionaire would be this idea that on the drop of a hat, I can book a private jet, fly up to New York, have a meal, fly home, and sleep in my own bed. That control It seems so appealing, but in reality, a life of control and a life of independence is a recipe for loneliness, emptiness, fear, and isolation. The myth of control and independence is a lie from the lips of the devil himself that he proliferates throughout the world because he wants to make us miserable. However, when you surrender control of your life to God and you follow Jesus, While it won't necessarily be a one-size-fits-all mountaintop experience, for the rest of your life, you will live in the presence of God. And you will see the glory of Jesus from now and into eternity. And that, the presence of God and the glory of Jesus, that is the pinnacle of human satisfaction. That is the pinnacle of human joy. Now, finally, you may be thinking, that sounds great, but how do I turn over control to Jesus? And what does this look like? I want to close with this word of comfort, which takes us to our third point, the pursuit. When Simon, James, John, and Levi woke up that morning, they did not say, I'm going to go find God. I'm going to go seek and discover the Messiah. They were not pursuing God. God was pursuing them. With the fishermen, there was a crowd around Jesus. His attention should have been focused on all these people, right? But Luke says that Jesus saw the two lakes and the lake that Jesus got into one of the boats, that Jesus spoke to Simon and asking him to push off from the land. Jesus initiates the relationship. Jesus was pursuing the fishermen. With Levi, Luke says that Jesus, quote, saw a tax collector named Levi, and that he said to him, follow me. Jesus initiates the relationship. Jesus was pursuing Levi. Now, you are called to give up control of your life to God, And you need to understand that if that's something you've done in the past or that's something you would do today for the first time, that Jesus has been pursuing you since before you were born. When God made a promise to Abraham to be his God and to be the God of his children, Jesus was pursuing you in that covenant. When Jesus came to the earth to live a perfect life, Jesus was pursuing you individually. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, Jesus was pursuing your life and your soul. Just as with the fishermen and Levi, 
Even though you may not have noticed Jesus, he sees you. And even though you may not have heard Jesus, Jesus calls you. You are not being called to hand over your life to some cold, distant, authoritarian dictator. You are being called to hand over your life to a warm, near person who cherishes your life and your soul. Notice that Jesus closes this story about Levi, saying, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We're all sick. We're all sinners. We're all clinging to control every single day. It's a battle every morning to surrender control to God. If your life is falling apart, there may be this temptation to think that this is God punishing you or that God is against you. In reality, it's a sign that God is pursuing you. He is showing you that you need to hand over control to him. And if you're here today, I just want you to think about all the providential circumstances that led you to be sitting in a pew on September the 15th, 2019 at a church of the Advent to hear a sermon. Could have been the family you were born into or the city where you live. Could have been a Google search. Could have been an invitation from a friend. Could have been the person that you married. But regardless, there is one reason that you are sitting here today, and that is because Jesus is pursuing you, and Jesus desires you and your soul. Now, I don't know exactly what it is for you, but I do know this. It's always time to let go. It's always time to trust Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray that you would glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.